0: Hello and welcome to the Thought Leader's Voice. I'm Rachel Kinsella, Editor-in-Chief at iResearch Services and your host for today's discussion on part of the three T's of financial services, trust, transparency and technology. Our latest guest is no stranger to the financial services industry. As Global Head of Capgemini Research Institute for Financial Services, Elias Gunem is a Senior Executive with an entrepreneurial drive and a strong customer experience focus. With a wealth of experience in wealth management, retail payments, e-payments, fintech, startup creation, and strategic partnerships. As a successful change agent with a history of leading emerging market entry, both in high-growth B2B and B2C environments, Ilyas has advanced expertise in managing customer acquisition and engagement programs through a multi-channel approach. He's also led well-known and respected Capgemini flagship thought leadership programs, that offer in-depth analysis, trends and industry insights across financial services. These include the World InsurTech Report, Payments Report, Fintech Report, Wealth Report, and many more. During his time at Capgemini, Elias has been pivotal in driving fintech growth for the global powerhouse, building bridges between Capgemini clients and the wider fintech ecosystem. As an active angel investor within the fintech sector, He's invested in companies that disrupt the traditional payment landscape and solve major pain points such as cash on delivery, cross-border remittances, and alternative payments to cash and cards like Bitcoin. Welcome, Elias. We're delighted you can join us today on The Thought Leader's Voice to share your expertise on the three T's of financial services. Today, we're talking about the challenges of building trust, more sustainable relationships, and flows of wealth across the financial sector and beyond. Thank you for joining us. A warm welcome.
1: Thank you richard for having me with you today
0: so if we start off customers is key focus in terms of the three t's which are we believe are the future of financial services customers fall under the e the s and the g of environmental social and governance they represent a number of the key un sdgs our firms approaching consumer duty in the context of wider sustainability initiatives and how does a better customer experience with financial providers align with both sustainability and growth goals?
1: And of course, this is the hundred million dollars question. And we're <laughs> board the ocean together because it's across all the industry and all the geography. But let's try to put some caveat here. Clearly, I would say there is two aspects. One is the geographies, North America, Europe, Asia. The second criteria is an age Different people behave differently towards ESG. And the third for me would be is the role of the regulator in all of that. If I let's start by Europe and take it to the rest of the world, in Europe, across Europe and in the UK, the regulators are extremely involved into the ESG agenda, putting in from rules to sensibilization to awareness to mandates to tracking to this and that sometimes going to the extreme, but it's important, I think, to make the effect and the effect is building up. And thus, the adoption is much bigger. Yes. When we go to the US, what I'm observing much more is it's more a generational aspect. Younger population, logically, are way more aware, interested, and sometimes activist when it comes to this topic of ESG. In Asia, I would say it's similar from an age perspective, younger population. In Australia, in Southeast Asia, you could see the younger population extremely active. Now, if I take it between also financial services, a very broad one, you have banks and insurance and within banks, you have the retail, the payment and the wealth. So let me start on the banking side. When we talk to retail, you could see it; it's all over the place from a communication perspective. Not a single bank today can is not putting somewhere in their communication yes. the importance of ESG. Same applies to the payment industry, same applies to the wealth. So from a communication perspective, it is there. And it has to be, right? You can't not be doing that. The danger is between facts and greenwashing. And. Some of the large banks are starting to get reminded that greenwashing is not what you are asking them to do. Indeed, yes. When it comes to insurance overall is, there is an adoption on the property and casualty insurance. This is the insurance of every day. And clearly flooding here, wildfires there, high temperature there, is automatically creating an impact on the environmental topic. And last, I'm going to say from a social perspective, The inclusiveness of the agenda, the presence of women across all the positions into the organization at all level is a reality. So from a social perspective, it is being implemented. So I would say on a 1 to 10, where are we? 10 being we are all 100% ESG, I think we are a 5 plus 6 overall. And of course, the nuance makes the difference across where we are. Wow, excellent.
0: That really puts it into perspective and uh, it is interesting to see those comparisons across different types of financial services organisation and indeed across different geographies where they've got to with regulation and effects that's having on the industry. You hit on a very important point in terms of communication, clear, transparent and truthful communication around sustainability and uh, and ESG initiatives is an absolute imperative and and firms will be falling behind. If they're not doing so, and we're very much seeing different areas of financial services faring better than others uh, in, in those respects, and a, a huge part of that is knowing your customer, both internally, as you mentioned, in the makeup of the organisation, looking at diversity, equity, and uh, and inclusion, and representation, which is a, a huge part of the SDGs and a, a huge part of of wider sustainability initiatives that often gets forgotten. But also uh, on the customer side, whether that's retail or institutional, just knowing your customer is no longer enough. Actually, you need to have a deep understanding of the customer, make sure that they're represented effectively in in communications, that you're actually providing the right kind of information and truthful two-way communication. But also that products and services are developed and personalized alongside and for customers who are demanding a better, more seamless experience. They're demanding more sustainable products and services, and they're demanding more from the providers they choose to work with. The trust really needs to be built and maintained, particularly when banks and fintechs alike are are failing, and that's very much in the media at the moment and pervading customers' minds. An area of financial services where you're really seeing this play out is, is in wealth management. Indeed, you flagged in last year's Global Wealth Report that customer relationships is a really make or break part of the, the puzzle for wealth managers and for really getting to grips with the, the high net worth audience. Can you tell us a little bit more about the different nuances involved in that and, and how you've seen that situation shift over the past year with the latest version of the report?
1: Rachel, interesting that you are mentioning the last year report. And if you remember last year, life was beautiful. At the time we published the World Wealth Report 2022, we were just out of COVID. Life was wonderful. Everybody was happy. There was not yet a war in between Ukraine and Russia. There was no geopolitical complexity. There was no inflation. Life was fantastic. And thus, at the time last year, trust was important. Let's take it, bring it to today. And a few weeks back, we released the World Wealth Report 2023, and the context is quite different. Maybe two numbers that worth keep in mind as we enter in this World the Wealth Report 2023. The first number, which is an astonishing one, minus 3.6% 3, 3. of year on year decline in the high net worth individual wealth in 2022. And that is versus the year before, mainly due to. The market volatility, right? Equity, which was the king or the queen of the wealth industry, went down, all the stock market went down, major shift into the mindset from growth to value, and major shift from what can get me high up to what can keep me in the right place. So that's the perception of the market. And thus, when that happens, trust becomes essential. The second number that I think very, very, very important to have in mind is only 23% of the high net force individuals reported returns on the ESG linked investment higher to non-ESG assets. So what does it mean? That only a quarter is telling us, you know what, I'm making good money with ESG. And thus, if I link it with the point before, I will continue being there. When things are not as stable and as growing on their own as they were before, every high net worth individual is doing trade-offs. And the major trade-off, if I link that to the ESG conversation we're having before, is will a high net worth individual continue to invest in ESG-linked assets as he was doing before when things were doing well? Probably not. So everyone is reconsidering their investment strategy, and the role of the relationship manager becomes essential to know where am I in my strategy, what age I am at, my family, my context, and my interest in investing in ESG or in highly profitable assets.
0: That's really interesting. And it's it's also worrying in that, obviously, there's all these factors, geopolitical, inflation, economic downturn, that as we suspected, are starting to cause a, a hit on investment and the sustainability initiatives, the sustainability investment that has been growing, is starting to see that have a, a knock-on effect. It's interesting that you highlight the relationship managers' responsibility there in terms of communicating the right ways to invest in these times of uncertainty but also to bring it back to the sustainability agenda. I mean, you can argue that it's a bit chicken and egg, but at the end of the day, there's not going to be anything to invest in or any wealth to be had if the planet fails. I think it's quite interesting to see where their responsibility lies and perhaps the pressure, the onus on relationship managers in getting that conversation right and being informed. So again, that's where it goes back to the trust being critical as as you mentioned, how do you find that firms are balancing that, looking at both the sustainability imperative and, and the need to, to provide returns for clients?
1: Let me start with a data point that Walsh also having in mind in what's going on through the mind of the relationship manager and the, the wealth management. When we asked the high net worth individuals, we engage with more than 3,000 high net worth individuals every year to understand where they are. 67% of them told us this year that preserving wealth is their key focus in, in the year to come. 67%. So it's not about growth. It's about maintaining, the t- holding the position. So now, if you are a wealth management firm, you have to modify completely the way the, your portfolio, the channels the engagement the interactions with your clients and when we engage with the wealth management companies we ask them what are your objectives going forward and they said really three elements reduce cost cost of operation reduce cost of operation reduce churn reduce customer churn make sure that we retain and the assets don't go somewhere else and all the confidence or the crisis of confidence we are going through with major banks moving ownership over the weekend is an important element into maintaining the trust. So reduce operational costs, reduce customer churn, and finally maximize profitability by being close to the customer, giving them what they are looking for, while looking to new sectors and the new sectors being the affluent segments. Where does ESG fits in all that? It is an asset that everybody has in mind. We always track the awareness of ESG and that's it. It's on everybody's mind. The adoption felt behind. And thus, the challenge for the wealth management firms in 2023 onward is to get back into the customer mind and telling them that ESG, truly ESG-linked assets, worth the investment. The biggest challenge: is the world truly ESG linked, in terms of tracking the maturity of the asset, the rating of the asset, and being able to prove that the rating that we are giving to an ESG linked asset is truly what we are telling them about it. So the whole greenwashing feeling disappear as we go.
0: Yeah, that's incredibly important, and no mean feat either in that you know proving. Those funds are are fit for purpose, proving the sustainability of that in investment without greenwashing or without in any way being being seen to be greenwashing. There'll be a, a large amount of nervousness uh, on behalf of various managers and in terms of labelling those funds and, and to make sure that those ratings are correct. Which again comes down to the fact checking, the transparency, and the um the the better communication. So uh, again, going back to trust having that strong relationship with customers, but also sort of knowing what you're talking about and knowing that you can you can back it up with facts. It's very interesting to see how things have, have moved on and instead of gearing everything up for growth, trying to maintain in, in these times of uncertainty, but also trying to bring that sustainability conversation back. I wonder if there are any learnings from other areas of financial services here that could be taken in terms of communication and in terms of linking back to to sustainability. Certainly, from the research that we've done, we found that perceptions of peers across subsectors of financial services are, are quite different in terms of how well they're doing on the sustainability front. Typically, asset managers and uh, investment banks are, have been seen as as leading the way, whereas regulated advice has been falling behind and only 23% of, uh, of industry peers felt that they were actually doing enough in terms of sustainability. So there's a real gap there in terms of communication and in really putting a, a label on the work that's being done is it realistic to expect that this approach that obviously this is what high net worth individuals are saying that they want to focus on maintaining wealth but also such a small percentage are saying that they're actually getting the right returns from sustainable investments so is it realistic to expect people to be investing in sustainable initiatives we know it's front of mind but is action actually following talk
1: I think there is, for me, it's a combination of two things. is the, the context that we are living in, high, unstable context, and stress is all over the place. So when stress happens at all levels into the uh, into wells, each one of us is more concerned on reducing the horizon, right? And yes, I'd love to save the planet, but I need to save my head before. So for me, that's one situation is the time frame. But I think for me, the second dimension, and I'm way more optimistic on the second dimension, is the impact. We are all seeing in our daily life the impact. If you are in Europe, which is a more tempered area, it's easier. We see less the impact. But if you go on the the West Coast of the US, if you go in Asia, if you go in Australia, if you go in Africa, you are starting to see the impact of the climate change. And we are, unfortunately, entering now in summer into the season where we will have on the news, on the first 10 minutes will be on wildfire and the next 10 minutes will be on um, flooding. And that will happen, unfortunately, to all this population. And all that will increase the impact on every population. So while in the short term people are constrained by the local environment and they need to make sure that they can put enough fuel in their car because fuel is going to the roof. On the other, they know that they must make a difference and at all levels. And now, and that's for, I would say for you and I, but if we talk about our children, our children are completely activists into this topic and sometimes maybe too much, but they really want to make a major change. And this population will be ad- forcing all financial services actors to be extremely aware, engaged, involved into true ESG. And I say true, rather just marketing ESG.
0: Yes. And that generational shift also in terms of them coming into being high net worth individuals and uh, being in a position to make those investments, they're going to be voting with their feet and choosing those providers and wealth managers and the funds that, that they know are actually acting in the planet's best interest and actually doing what they say they will so it'll be interesting in in a year's time to see how things have shifted again in terms of the uh, the overall wealth picture um and um, where investment priorities will will lie one of the things you mentioned that that I found interesting is uh, along with the the pressures of reducing customer churn and ensuring that um differentiation and uh, uh, against the the competition you mentioned about uh, reducing costs and increasingly, technology is a way to to do that. there's it seems to be this battle across financial services to between the traditional providers who are uh, lumbered with legacy systems and infrastructure that's not necessarily fit for purpose and hopeless amounts of office space, for example, versus the up-and-coming fintechs who haven't got the same overheads, They've, they've got those direct relationship with customers, they've got the technology for for speed and ease of payments and, and other transactions. And some of the research that that you were doing way back sort of two, three years ago uh, was looking at um, how these different providers are competing and how they're they're working together. And you saw some emerging interesting relationships between fintechs and tech companies and traditional financial services providers, either partnering up or the big financial services firms buying specific fintechs or starting up ones of their own. How has that situation changed over the the past few years? Because I think this would have quite significant implications on the sustainability side, but also in terms of Who's actually winning the, the share of wallet and, and who's winning those customers when everything's front of mind?
1: Look, if I backtrack the last 10 years, I think the, the financial service ecosystem, the traditional players, went into three phases plus one now. So the three phases were at the beginning, I don't care, right? I'm too big to fall, I'm too important. Who cares about fintech, these people that makes noise, that are run by people that are in their 20s, that only live on uh, funding? That was the first uh, situation. The second one was denial. No, I don't need them. I'm still big, strong, solid, beautiful, and I can do it. So the fintech at this time were starting to build the uh, presence and share of wallet, right? We're not anymore talking about Hundreds of thousands of customers, we're talking of millions of customers. Revolut has more than 20 million of customers. Then that brought us to the third phase after denial was collaboration. And collaboration was about, look, guys, clearly new players have a better last mile delivery experience. Every single bank tried to compete with the last mile, the app, the aggregation of services, the gamification and more or less nobody succeeded and while the entire fintech ecosystem made it very well and if anybody would have thought that this collaboration and then the banks moved into that case into the banking as a service payment as a service wealth as a service where we provide service to the other new age player and they would run with it and now we entered in a force phase that nobody was expecting which I tend to call the Black Friday of fintech, where valuations are going down, cash is going short, fundraising is a struggle, and running a fintech that is not profitable but is heavy cash burner to maintain the market share is becoming difficult. And that's where banks are, I would say, tend to now cover the, the circle and saying, hey, I did not care about you yesterday. Now I do care about you, but I will buy you. So I bring, either I remove you from the game or I learn from you as we go. So from ignorance or I don't care to denial, to collaboration, now it's the acquisition time. And that applied to all the segments. Of course, the one that is more relevant is the payment. But if we look into wealth, this is the opportunity for all traditional players to build their sustainability agenda, their scoring, their rating, their education, their engagement by leveraging the wealth tech ecosystem that is quite broad, rich and stable, and that could enable the wealth management firms to have a better experience for their high net worth individuals.
0: That's a very real opportunity, isn't it? And as well, when you consider, as we were talking about earlier about the generational shift. As the next generation is gathering wealth, the new generation of clients, they're going to be the kind of services that are expected, never mind, demanded. So there's an opportunity to, to get ahead now or fall fall behind very, very quickly. Are you seeing any interesting examples of that sort of emerging at the moment on the on the wealth side? So
1: one thing that we're observing a lot on the wealth side is every single large player now is building their rating, their scoring, their tracking at all scopes, scope scope one, two, and three. And they are not able to do it alone. There is not a single uh, large wealth management firm that is able to build their whole sustainability ecosystem on their own. And they are doing it significantly with several uh, wealth tech that are in the market. And I would tend to say not only they are building their uh, sustainability agenda, but they're building their data agenda. And today, to link it with what you were saying at the beginning, knowing your customer, not only from a risk profile, not only from an ESG profile, which is now has become also mandatory on an ESG evaluation, but it's also know your customer from a customer behavior profile, where the payment industry is quite good into it. Now, the retail and the wealth is stepping in to be able to better understand their customers and if i link that with one of the topics that we mentioned earlier on in terms of the affluent population the mass affluent and the affluent at CAD gemini we refer to the high net worth individuals anybody that has an, an available wealth of a million and above and an affluent is below 1 million down to 250 and then you have the mass affluent clearly to approach the affluent segment we mentioned quite a lot in our report you need to have the right data updated, the right channels, and the right information personalized to my behavior. It's only if you are working with the Wellstack ecosystem that you are able to deliver the service that I'm expecting.
0: Yeah, absolutely. That's where that behavioral data becomes critical and it's as we were saying at the beginning knowing your customer isn't enough you actually need that in-depth behavioral data you need that in-depth overview of who your customer really is and uh, and those different touch points and um, as you mentioned earlier the fintechs tend to be the ones who, who are adept at that kind of process, that kind of gathering the right kind of data at the right time, and then being able to communicate with customers effectively, as a result. So it would be really interesting to see those sorts of models playing out across other more traditional providers, um, and particularly in the in the wealth space, that will be be one to watch. But again, it's a another opportunity, as as you say, to to really get to grips with the right kind of data and uh, and the right kind of customer experience. Are there any other emerging trends that that you're seeing I and mean, it's a very broad question but either specifically in in wealth management but also in in these sort of fintech banking relationships are there any exciting new nuggets that that you can share with us from the research that you've been doing?
1: Oh there are so many insights because as we go across all the industries uh, in banking and insurance but the two that comes top of my mind is I'm going to say a zoom into the insurance side and a zoom into the payment side on the insurance side is the mobility agenda we we recently re- released the the world property and casualty uh, report was is focusing on the evolution from protecting insuring my car to protecting my mobility anyone you and i in an urban environment we don't take cars anymore, right? To go from A to B, there are way, 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 many, many ways that need to be, that we could use before having to take a car. All these means need to be insured, especially if we're not talking anymore about myself, but myself, my wife, my children, and so on. And I need to make sure that everybody is protected. So the mobility agenda involve bankers, involve insurer, involve mobility players, involve regulators, involve card manufacturers, and all of that is creating a new ecosystem that needs to be orchestrated. Uh, and of course, financial services is at the heart of that. The second one that for me, if I shift now under the payment side, there are two elements that are very, very, very dominant and one having a consequence on the other. The first one is what we call direct to consumer. More and more Uh, large brands, the Nike of the world are building or the Uber of the world, by the way, are building an end-to-end experience where they, I can do everything on their own platform, being physical or digital, being walking the store or just doing that digital. I need to be able to engage with my provider, not only to buy the sneakers, but also to have A lease plan for changing sneakers every sometimes, or to build in training uh, exercises. Or if I move to the mobility, like Uber is also financing my car if I'm a driver, and so on. And all that is happening not anymore with a banker partner where I leave the merchant site and I go to the bank or the insurer, but is completely embedded, transparent, invisible, and frictionless. Into the brand website, we call it direct to consumer. That's the major trend. The consequence of this trend is a major evolution that we are seeing into the payment industry, where banks are lagging behind and being able to deliver this experience to the brands. And we are seeing the new players in payment: Adyen, Stripe, Square, PayPal are becoming taking the upper hand when they go to large merchants and offer them a physical and digital payment solutions. Also, we're seeing new payment schemes or new payment solution, instant payment, cross-border payment, the whole new regulations called ISO 20022. A lot of changes are happening into the payment industry and banks are struggling to lead the, the game. As such, we are seeing several large banks, as well as middle and small, but large banks, starting to let go their payment business, either by selling it to a large player, to a world line of the world, or doing joint ventures. A few weeks back, a tier one banks in France called Credit Agricole. This announced a joint venture with Worldline, uh, and they were having Worldline probably in competition with many other players, but doing a joint venture with Worldline with 51% to Worldline, 49% to Credit Agricole, where the payment business is now operated by the third party. So the, in long story short is we are seeing a transfer of value from a completely run business within the payment uh, lens, uh, payment banking provider to a more broad scope with collaboration or even transfer of value to the new players. The PayTech is the industry that is moving the fastest because it touched everybody in, in, in our world. And I can't finish without talking about Apple, that not only have Apple Pay, not only have the, the whole wallet that is becoming a reality, now issues card uh, in the U.S., also now have now a four plus percent interest rate account in the U.S. and is able to collect more than a billion dollars in less than a week. Uh, Apple is becoming a large pay tech in our industry.
0: It's fascinating, isn't it? Just to see how quickly things have moved uh, in the payments industry just over the past year, never mind the past two to five years. And it's, kind of in in line with a couple of other trends that, that that we're seeing across other sectors as well in that looking at the customer as a whole person in context of their family in where they live uh, their behaviors and uh, you know something that you're seeing in healthcare for example and again apple you've got apple watches you've got wearable technology heart monitors, diabetes tracking, um, other sort of aspects for, for overall health and well-being and, and protecting mobility, as you, you were mentioning for um your insurance report. But it's all coming together. Customers are expecting to have everything in one place and to have those seamless experiences, but also organisations are having to get to know their customers on a far deeper level than before, taking into account not just their financial situation, but their family situation where where they are geographically, what their behaviors are as you were saying that the kind of stores that they they go into, whether they buy new sneakers every every year and and that's really interesting seeing where they they all converge. it's starting to bring different sectors together but be powered by Fintechs or financial services institutions. And, and that's where those, the, the agile fintechs have got that edge and are leading the way. Actually, if I,
1: may, if I may interrupt you here, one thing that for me is underneath all that is you and I now are willing to share data, right? There have been a major shift. Uh, I'm willing to give my data to my providers if I get the benefit out of it. And clearly, COVID has accelerated the process of the non-face-to-face the digitalization, the digital payment, and so on. That's a given. But now, people get used to being rewarded for the data they share. And as such, the financial ecosystem is expected to be personalized, is expected to tell me what I want, when I want it, how I want it, to so the channel I want it. And the only way to do that is I give you my data or I give you some of my data, you give me what I need for. And that is the uh, the major paradigm shift from data privacy to data benefit. And from there, of course, with all the protection of uh, what can be shared or cannot be shared, but that's the inflection point of being able to, by knowing the customer, giving them what they are specifically looking for at a certain time and a certain time in their journey, in their geography, and so on and so forth.
0: Do you think there's a, a concern on the flip side of that, that um, people are, actually, they've got used to sharing data if they get what they need in, in return, but being reluctant to share data or if they don't perceive that they're they're going to get their need in return. And again, sort of when when there's times of, lower trust across the marketplace do you see that being a significant concern
1: i do see it as in somewhere in my mind right everybody is concerned today from the banking sector but let's be realistic the bank run remained and will remain probably extremely limited right to few actors where there is a major concern we still you and i we still have our money in the bank and we will probably keep it in the bank and by the way us, our parents, our children, everybody's keeping their mind there. There is a moment of today of stress, of emotional stress, when we see on Friday, uh, that ownership is different from Monday in some banks in some countries, but that's limited in nature. What I'm seeing that is becoming very important is the cybersecurity concern. And uh, After the geopolitical crisis, after the inflation crisis, after the sanitary crisis, we feel one of the major trends is the next one is the cybersecurity concern, the cybersecurity crisis. Because we're all connected, our data is available all over the place, how will the regulators and private sector who owns our data and our money protect us is the next expectation. And if I want to see the same story, but in the glass half full, rather than half empty, half empty being cybersecurity, half full will be the evolution from open banking to open finance. Where open banking got us where we are today. Because my behavior at XYZ, I am rewarded one, two, three. And that's straightforward. And thanks to that, many new players came to play. This is in the open banking. Open finance is an evolution to open insurance, me being rewarded on my premiums depending on my behavior. But it also brings me to open finance where my relationship is completely embedded with my provider of a service rather than with my bank, right? Back to direct to consumer. The evolution from open banking to open finance will accelerate or decelerate, depending on the risk of cybersecurity and privacy concern that we are in and we might be in in the coming months.
0: Yeah, that's really important. And uh, it'll be fascinating to, to see how that plays out. I think even before we had concerns around banks failing in recent months, we did a survey that we first did two, two and a half years ago, looking at trust with financial providers uh, of different kinds but um with a fo- focus on on retail banking and trust was pretty high a couple of years ago as you said everything was rosy then and um, things were all looking good they've been well looked after during all the covid lockdowns and sentiment was pretty strong but cybersecurity concerns data concerns pervaded and they're even higher now so when we we last did, did a pulse version of that survey uh, a couple of months ago, it was one of the, the most significant concerns flagged, along with communication, and actually a willingness to switch provider based on, on better, more personalised communication, which brings it back round to your original point about the, the crucial nature of communication across financial services uh, with their customers. So I think the trust elements seem to come into the communication point and the relationship there and the the cybersecurity and the data concerns which are are still front of mind for many customers. It would be interesting again to see how that changes. We're, we're keeping a track of it regularly to to gauge sentiment and see what people's responses are. but uh, it would be very interesting to see what what comes out in uh, in each of your your key world reports as well, specific to financial services sectors.
1: I'm going to put a number here because I think it's important also in our wealth report uh, that we just released, 44%, it's a big number, 44% of the high net worth individuals are saying inefficient, slow, and subpar service is influencing them to switch wealth management firms. Almost one of two is saying, because today I am not served as I deserve, I am looking somewhere else. From looking somewhere else to shifting somewhere else, there is always a gap. But 44% is a quite big number.
0: Yes, absolutely. And we had similar numbers. I think it was something like 62% were saying that they'd be happy to shift if they they had a better experience and better communication. So as we said earlier, people are going to vote with their feet and firms really risk missing out if, if they don't do something about it. I think that's a, a really nice note to end on. It's You could look at it glass half full as a uh, as an opportunity, a chance to get ahead, and you could look at it as glass half empty uh, in that there's, there's a lot of work to be done and uh, you don't want to, to miss the boat. So thank you so much for joining us today and sharing all of your insights. I really could chat to you for... For a long time, uh, and go through all of these elements in in depth, and, and perhaps we'll get chance to to speak again about some of the specific topics as you uh, uh, release further reports, and uh, and as we we gather some more research as well.
1: Richard, thank you so much for having me with you today, and having such a lovely and interesting chat on where is the banking industry uh, evolving from banking and insurance side. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you. Really appreciate it.